Name Shri Gaur Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhupada Shri Dvaita Gadadha Shri Vasami Gaur Bhakti Vrindavan Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gaur Gopinath Shandakunda Radha Kundi Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Vatura Dhamma Ki Jai Navadrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Maya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanand all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada and Mahal Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prashtaya Vujalashri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane. Namaste Sarasvati Deva and Gauravati Pachana and Yupasisa Sumavati Maskatana Vandayam Shri Guru Shri Uttal Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shashi Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana Ravanatam Vitam Samsajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Vanchakapajubhishta Kipasindhi Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's 15th of November 2016 in Radharadana Temple in Durban, South Africa. And we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 2, Chapter 5, The Cause of All Causes, Text 33. Bhagavat Shakti Chodita Bhagavat Shakti Chodita Sad Asatva Mupadaya Sad Asatva Mupadaya Chobayam Sasrijur Yada Chobayam Sasrijur Yada Also, Anyonyam, one another, Bhagavat, by the personality of Godhead, Shakti, energy, Choditaha, being applied, Sat Asatvam, primarily and secondarily. Upadaya, accepting, cha, also, upayam, both, sasrajuhu, came into existence, he, certainly, adaha, this universe, translation and purport by Shantopa. Thus, when all these became assembled by force of the energy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, this universe certainly came into being, by accepting both the primary and secondary causes of creation. Purport. In this verse, it is clearly mentioned that the Supreme Personality of Godhead exerts his different energies in the creation. It is not that he himself is transformed into material creations. Again, this is a point Prabhupada makes all the time. Anybody know why 
Srila Prabhupada makes this point over and over and over again that the world is a creation of the energies of the Lord, not a transformation of the Lord himself. Yes? Some actually think when he enters into this world, he accepts the material form. That's part of it, yeah. Well, my suggestion to you is that you read Chaitanya Charitamrita, Adi Lila, chapter 7. Uh, that was published separately by the BBT as uh, Lord Chaitanya in Five Features. So before we had the Chaitanya, long before we had the Chaitanya Charitamrita, we had uh, the book Lord Chaitanya in Five Features, which was just that chapter. And in that chapter, there's a discussion of Mayavada philosophy. All the, each point of Mayavada philosophy is there with a counter-argument. And one of the main arguments of Mayavada philosophy is that the Lord has no energies. He has no energies. He's, he's non-dual, so therefore he couldn't have energies, they say. And they say everything here is just a transformation of the Lord himself rather than a transformation of his energies. So because of that particular philosophy, Shiva Prabhupada makes this point quite a bit. Okay, so we're going to read this again. In this verse, it is clearly mentioned that the Supreme Personality of God it exerts his different energies in the creation. It is not that he himself is transformed into material creations. He expands himself by his different energies, as well as by his plenary portions. Now Prabhupada's going to go into a brief summary of the creation. In a corner of the spiritual sky of Brahma Jyoti, a spiritual cloud sometimes appears, and the covered portion is called the Mahatattva. The Lord then, by his plenary portion as Mahavishnu, lies down within the water of the Mahatattva, and the water is called the causal ocean, Karanajala. While Mahavishnu sleeps within the causal ocean, innumerable universes are generated along with his breathing. These universes are floating, and they are scattered all over the causal ocean. They stay only during the breathing period of Mahavishnu. In each and every universal globe, the same Mahavishnu again enters as Garbhadakachai Vishnu and lies there on the serpent-like Sesha incarnation. From his navel sprouts a lotus stem, and on the lotus Brahma, the lord of the universe, is born. Brahma creates all forms of living beings of different shapes in terms of different desires within the universe. He also creates the sun, moon, and other demigods. Therefore, the chief engineer of the material creation is the Lord himself, as confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 9.10. Does anybody know what verse that is? 9.10? Maya dakshayana prakriti suyate satyamatram kantaya It is he only who directs the material nature to produce all sorts of moving and non-moving creation. So that's basically a, a summary translation of 9.10. There are two modes of material creation. The creation of the collective universes, as stated above, done by Mahavishnu, and the creation of the single universe. Both are done by the Lord, and thus the universal shape, as we can see, takes place. Tada samhatya kanyonyam bhagavat chaktichoritaha sad asatvam upadhaya Thus, when all these become assembled by force of the energy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, this universe certainly came into being by accepting both the primary and secondary causes of creation. So the whole purpose of the Bhagavatam is to reunite us with the Personality of Godhead in loving service. And the difficulty for us, however, is that we are very conscious of this world. You know, to meditate just on the Lord in the spiritual world is very difficult for us. 
because we have so many things to absorb our minds here. You know, we have to worry about our clothes and our room and our food and our relationships and our money and our health, etc., 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 etc. And these things take up a large amount of our time, both in terms of practical action. I mean, if you think of how many hours we spend every day just keeping this body functioning, especially if you count sleep, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of the time. And then if, you, if people have a job or a business and they're working to make money to maintain their body, if you count that in their time, there's practically no time left for anything else. And our mind is going to be absorbed in what we're doing. Well, naturally, right? That's just, that's just natural. So when it comes to thinking of the Lord in his eternal abode, with his eternal pastimes and his eternal associates, it's a little difficult for us. And we find that a large portion of the Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, is about how we can find the Lord in our world. So both is there. The meditation on the Lord in his own abode is certainly there. Otherwise, we would become like most of the other religions of the world that don't know anything of the Lord beyond the universe, that only meditate on the Lord in the world. So certainly, we want to meditate like we have all these pictures here in this temple room. So we want to meditate on the Lord's activities in his own abode. At the same time, we need to also meditate on the Lord in this world. If we didn't, there wouldn't be such a large portion of the Shastras dedicated for that purpose. And the Ishapanishad, in fact, says that asambutim, 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 vidya avidya, sat asat. One should know both. One has to know the eternal and the temporary. If, if we find that people who only try to be absorbed in Krishna's leelas, uh, they don't tend to act very properly in this world. Yes? They don't tend to form, follow moral principles and things like that. The, the different asampradayic groups that we call sahajiyas are in that category. They don't deal with the Lord in the world. They don't, they don't try to connect the world with the Lord. And then, of course, we have people who don't think of the Lord outside of the world at all. Now, the way that we can connect the world with the Lord is to know that it's his energies. Because there's also other groups who don't know anything. There, there's some religious groups who don't know anything about the Lord beyond this world, but also have trouble connecting the world with the Lord. If we think of the major religious philosophies in the world today, which is basically Islam and Christianity, those are the two major religions in the world today. Uh, they really don't understand how the Lord creates the world or how the Lord is present in the world. They really don't know. Their scriptures give very little information. Just, the Lord spoke and there was the world. Now there's a few sentences in their scriptures that describe the relationship of the Lord to the world. There's, there's not really a description of the nature of property. So they don't know anything about the Lord in his own abode. I mean, really nothing. Like Jesus says, there's many mansions there. He says, but I can't tell you all of this. He says, I have a lot to tell you, but I can't tell you. So they don't really know anything. And they don't really know much of how the Lord works in this world. And so we find that the followers of such religions tend to be mostly just materialistic persons, despite their best intentions to be otherwise. You know, they, they have good intentions to be otherwise, but they don't have the, the knowledge and the guidance to be otherwise. So they tend to just be aiming at 
good, moral, hardworking people of the world who have some consciousness of their creator. And I mean, they try. They try to see the beauty of the Lord and the sunrise and, and things like this. But without a lot of scriptural guidance, it's very difficult. Also, what we find is that most of the other religious systems of the world are having a very difficult time countering Darwinian evolution because their description of creation in their scriptures is, is so brief. You know, it's not in detail. And their idea of time is very difficult. So there's not that good of an indication in the Bible and in the Quran of what was the time scale of creation. How long ago did it happen? How long did it take? What's happening with it? And so they're proposing things such as that the world is only 6,000 years old, which is so easy to be proved false. And because they are tying in the idea of intelligent design and an intelligent godly creator with this concept of a very young earth, so they become ridiculed by the scientific community. Also, they can't explain in detail how the Lord created. All they can say is, we know an intelligent person created this. I mean, that, that's a good start. <laughs> you know, like we can say, we know an intelligent person created this rug. That's a very, this rug is an extremely simple thing compared to, say, you know, a one-celled amoeba. The, the difference in complexity is, is tremendous. But we can say an intelligent person created this rug, but we might not know how they created it. And so our argument is not very solid. So this is another difficulty with most of the world's religions. Although it's good that people have some religion, undoubtedly. And we would like to encourage people to have a, a religion and to be connected with God. But the Bhagavatam is giving us detailed descriptions of the creation of the Lord and how the Lord's energies are manifested. And it's not that we're supposed to read these things and study these things and know these things as some kind of, you know, neat or interesting series of trivial facts that we could fill out an exam with. Okay, so what are the Purusha avatars? Okay, let's see, there's, 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 there's Karandakshay Vishnu and Garbhadakshay Vishnu and Kshiradakshay Vishnu. Prabhupada doesn't mention Kshiradakshay Vishnu. And he breathes the universes and we just kind of tell the story. And we see with a lot of Hindus that that's exactly how they deal with the stories in their scriptures. They have the knowledge there, but they just deal with them as cool, far-out stories. Right? Which they don't even fully believe, a lot of them. This is the legends and the myths of our religion is often how they'll explain them. And they just tell the stories. And then they also lead materialistic lives, most of them. Isn't that a fact? You know, we get up, we lead a life like anybody else, but we have these really cool far-out stories. So we're not meant to do that either. What are we supposed to do with these? What's the purpose of, of a verse like this and a purport like this? How do, what, are supposed to, what use of it do we make in our lives? Well, one use of it is to conquer atheism in the world. Srila Prabhupada was very keen on using the scientific and detailed explanations. Prabhupada was very keen on using the scientific and detailed explanations of the Shastra as a means to counteract atheistic philosophy. Because the atheists have presented their philosophy as if it's something uh, very solid and logical and, and research. 
which it's not. And there's not really, as I say, there's not really any, any good counterclaim to the scientists. The, the Christians really do not provide a good counterclaim, or the Muslims. They're able to present a counterclaim that there must be an intelligent designer and they can find evidence for intelligent design. But how it came about, they don't know. Do you follow the difference? The scientists can present a very specific scenario, albeit without much facts or evidence to back it up, but still they can present a scenario. And whereas the Christians and the Muslims just say, well, it just happened. So we can give a very detailed description of how it happened. And if one gets into this Sankhya of the second and the third canto, especially in the Bhagavatam, second, third, and eleventh canto, and in a summary form in the thirteenth chapter, particularly of the Bhagavad Gita, one finds that our philosophy of science, the Shastras, our Shastras give a philosophy of science, far exceeds anything that the non-devotees can come up with. And when I was in graduate school, I took a class called Philosophy of Research and Philosophy of Science. And I'd say that was the first time since joining the Krishna Consciousness Movement that I really understood what Prabhupada meant by mental speculation. I mean, that class was just 100% mental speculation. So I just sat in the back of the class and read Narottamadasta course of songs. But I didn't have to work hard in that class. Thank you, Krishna. But they, they really don't have anything solid. And the Bhagavatam, especially this section. So why does that matter? Why should we care about counteracting these atheistic philosophies? Just like practically none of you knew the uh, impersonal philosophy that Shiva Prabhupada was counteracting in this first sentence of this purport. Why is this important? Because people's actions are based on philosophy, even if they don't know it. You know, your average Joe who just gets in the taxi and goes to work and punches in and punches out and, and drinks some beer and has some sex and watches sports on the television and sleeps, may not understand that their life is based on philosophy. They may think, well, I'm just living life, but they have a philosophy. Their, their philosophy may be, I'm just an animal and my purpose of life is just to gratify my senses. But that is a philosophy. And when you have a philosophy that's atheistic, then the whole world becomes spoiled on, on every level, which is practically what's happening. This atheistic Darwinian philosophy, it, it ruins everything. Nobody cares if all we are is this body and this life we're just some chance combination of atoms and this life is all in all. What does it matter if we destroy the planet? Why does it matter? Why does it matter if we kill people and hurt people and kill animals? And it, it just doesn't matter. Whether or not the whole earth exists doesn't matter. Whether or not anybody exists doesn't matter. There's no meaning to anything. And, and trying to get people to behave properly with the philosophy of atheism is, is very difficult. You can't give a very strong argument as to why they should behave properly. So it really does matter. And you can say, well, the average person isn't going to understand this kind of philosophy anyway. That's true. Undoubtedly, that's true. The only people who will understand it are the brahmanas, are the intellectuals in society. 
But what happens is whatever philosophy the intellectuals in society ascribe to becomes filtered down through the rest of the society. It, it will get reflected in government policies, it will get reflected in business, it will get reflected in the media, it will get reflected in entertainment. When the intellectuals of society are convinced that there's a spiritual, religious, and godly basis to society, you will see a godly society, more or less. And when the intellectuals are convinced that the basis of life is atheistic and, and random and chance, then you will see that reflected in society. And more and more and more, the intellectual class all over the world is becoming atheistic. In fact, the intellectual class is more atheistic than the people in general right now. And that's what's pushing society towards atheism. So we need to realize these things in order to preach. Our preaching is not only on the basis of Harinam and book distribution and bringing a thousand people here last night, which was very impressive, uh, to light candles, but it's also on the scientific and intellectual and philosophical levels. Now, that particular preaching might not be for everybody, uh, but everybody should contribute to it, everybody should support it. Uh, Srila Prabhupada wanted a large amount of money and time and effort put into our Bhakti Vedanta Institute. So this is something that is extremely important, and uh, those of us who are intellectuals or scientists, or if we know people who are, should be very encouraged to take up this as part of their preaching. Uh, there's another level on which this is very important. Uh, of course, if we do that, we please Lord Chaitanya, and we please Srila Prabhupada, which uh, directly and strongly impacts our own spiritual life. Yes? If we contribute to the dissemination of the intellectual, theistic philosophy, the Sankhya philosophy of the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Lord Chaitanya, very pleased. Gaurhari you will be very pleased. Uh, Srila uh, Prabhupada will be very pleased. And that will be something very nice for us. Uh, but on a personal daily level, these kind of verses are important because they allow us to develop affection for the Lord in the scope of our daily lives. And the, and the point of view of our own internal spiritual development. Because then we see the hand of the Lord everywhere. And we can really relish these descriptions. I mean, these descriptions are, in one sense, as relishable as the Dhammadhar Leela. Bhaktivinoda talks about in Jaiva Dharma, this material world is also the Leela of the Lord. Of course, Bhaktivinoda specifically enjoins us that we should chant the primary names of the Lord. We should chant the names of the Lord in relationship to his eternal pastimes and his eternal associates. We shouldn't just be concerned with this material creation. But we can also think, even in meditating on the Lord in his abode, wow, what an amazing God I have, how he creates the world. So we don't want to become attached to the Lord just in his uh, Karunadakushai, Garbhadakushai, and Kshiradakushai features. We want to become attached to the Lord as Radharadanath, as Yusodhanamadar, right, as Subalsaka, we want to become as uh, Raktaknath. We want to become attached to the Lord like that, undoubtedly. But we also will become more attached to the Lord like that when we appreciate His amazing, incredible, inconceivable way that He creates the material world. In fact, there's the song, um, the Madarastakam. Some of you are familiar with the song, Madarastakam? 
So it goes through all the things that are sweet about the Lord. His lips are sweet, his smile is sweet, his fruit is sweet, his feet are sweet, his foot dust is sweet, the gopis are sweet, the coward boys are sweet, his lilas are sweet, the jamun is sweet, the waves of the jamun is sweet, the lotuses in the jamun are sweet. His creation is sweet. List all these things about the Lord in Goloka Vrindam. The whole song. And then there's one. His creation is sweet. So why is that listed? So anyway, that's the mood in which we should listen to this purport. Just like if you have a friend or a family member and they do something wonderful in a very formal way, you're going to appreciate your intimate friend more for what they do even formally. Isn't that true? If you have some intimate friend, intimate family member, intimate friend, and they get some big government post, and there they are in fancy formal clothing on the television. Right? So that's not the mood in which you have your relationship with them. But it increases your appreciation of your relationship with them. You say to your brother, wow, you know, hey brother, I'm really amazed at what you just did on the television. Do do you all understand? Yes? So we're not interested in a formal on reverence relationship with the Lord as a creator. That's not what we're trying to do with these verses. These verses are trying to get us to appreciate the Srinandanandana, Vajkumar, in his activities of creation so that we can connect what we're doing here with him. So let's look at this amazing story. So there's the spiritual world, unlimited effulgent Vaikuntha planets, And Prabhupada says, sometimes there's a cloud. Just like even in our sky here, there are not always clouds. Although you wouldn't know that from the last week that we've been here. (laughs) Hare Krishna. I was wondering what impression my granddaughter was going to have of Durban, you know. What was Durban like? Cold and rainy and cloudy. (laughs) Uh, But sometimes in the sky, there's a cloud. So sometimes in the spiritual sky, there's a cloud. It's not always there. Sometimes it's there. And in this cloud, there's a great ocean. So we know in the clouds, there's water. Of course, the water in the clouds is usually just as water vapor, not in the form of an ocean. There's a great ocean. This ocean is fully conscious and alive. It's personal. It's personal. In this world, some things are alive and some things are not alive. There's, there's matter and spirit, and even among the things that are alive, uh, some of the things that are alive are only very slightly conscious, like the plants or the little bugs. Of course, there's a lot of interesting research. There's a, a new book out called The Secret Life of Trees and how trees are much more conscious and aware than we give them credit for. But anyway, this is called the causal ocean, the ocean of causes. And this ocean is fully alive. It's living water. Actually, Jesus said this to the, a woman at the well. He said, I will give you living water uh, after drinking which you will never need to thirst again. So there's this living water. And because after all, it's in the spiritual world. And the Lord lies down in the water. We like to do that, right? We like to go to the ocean and lie down in the water. Very relaxing. That's how the Lord creates the material world. 
Does anybody here create things like that? We had this big festival yesterday. It was well over a thousand people. What'd you say? How many people yesterday were here? He wasn't even here. He went to Peter Marysburg. And about a thousand, something like that, maybe a little more. So, was that something you could do in your sleep? Could you manage that in your sleep? Oh, temple leaders, did you manage that in your sleep? Did you? No. Could you just say, okay, I'm going I'm to go on the ocean and I'm just going to lie down and float in the waves and the festival will happen. Right? Or you did a dance yesterday. Could you do a dance like that? Could you plan your dance like that? Just say, okay, okay, Grandma, I'm going to be working on my dance for the festival. You're just lying in your bed. Yeah, that's how I'm doing it. Right? It wouldn't work like that. You had all this prasadam yesterday. And we saw in preparation for the prasadam, there were several dozen people at the tables for hours and hours and hours. And they were exerting physical energy and they were making dough and they were rolling it out. But when Krishna wants to create the world, he goes to sleep. Yoga Nidra. Of course, he doesn't go into a sleep like we sleep. He has a Yoga Nidra. Uh, he goes into a state of trance. And then he creates the world by breathing. I don't know what I create by breathing. I mean, I, I nourish the trees by breathing. Yes, we all nourish the trees by breathing. You know that, right? Everybody knows that. So I'm, I'm feeding the trees by breathing. But I don't think I create much of anything by breathing. Not that I'm aware of. I've never created anything in my sleep. I mean, we have that kind of expression. Oh, I know that so well, I could do it in my sleep. But it's not actually true. So he just lies down on this living water, and he just rests and goes into a trance. And basically, he's dreaming the material world. And I can't remember. It was such a long time ago that I read this. I don't remember if it was Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass. I think it was Through the Looking Glass. But one of those books of Lewis Carroll, he talks about how this world is just the dream of somebody. Some king's dream. That's actually a fact. The world is simply the Lord's dream. We're all characters in Mahavishnu's dream. So this is his, his sleeping condition. He dreams the material world. And the universe has come out like little bubbles that are floating on this causal water. And Prabhupada says they only exist for one breath of Mahavishnu. So this entire universe, which lasts billions of years by our earthly human calculation, is one breath. Virgin has calculated that our human life in Kali Yuga is eight billions of a second in relationship to the whole duration of the universe. But we're very interested in this eight billions of a second to be rich and famous and beautiful. 
Please, Lord, make me rich, famous, and beautiful, and strong for eight billionths of a second. So he breathes out these universes, and as he's breathing out, and breathing in. And uh, we, have, we do have an idea of an expanding universe. He breathes out, and the universes are very small, and they gradually grow with his breath. And then as he breathes in, they gradually shrink. Just like if, if I breathe out, I could blow up a balloon, right? And then it gradually collapses. So that, that's what's happening. But he's breathing out also through his pores. You know that we also do respirate through our pores to some extent. So his, his breathing is not just through his nose and mouth, but it's also through all of the pores in his transcendental body. And universes are just pouring out of the pores and floating in the causal ocean and gradually expanding and then gradually contracting. And so there's this cyclical time. And most of us think of time as linear, because time is it's cyclical. Okay, then in each universe, in order to activate the universe, uh, the Lord expands his Garba Dakashavishnu. Garba means womb. So he goes into these universes. The universe also has water at the bottom of the universe, although I don't think that water is, is alive. And the Lord is lying down on that water. And there he lies down. He has a floaty. You know, like you go in the ocean and you have people have, or in the pool, and they have this plastic thing they blow up and lie on. Right? So they kind of bring a, their sofa, their couch into the water with them. You know, and if you're really fancy about it, you have a little table on it, and you can have like a smoothie, you know, on the table, and you get some waterproof MP3 player <laughs> there in the in the water, listening to your your music and with your smoothie with a bent straw. So that's kind of what Garbhadakshay Vishnu is doing, uh, except he lies on a snake. So he doesn't lie on an inflatable plastic raft. He lies on a snake, who's an expansion of Balaram. Ananta Sesha, which both means unlimited. Sesha means unlimited, and Ananta, Ananta means without end. An unlimited snake that becomes a bed for him. I mean, is, is that really amazing? God creates by lying down in this living water and sleeping and breathing out universes that float in the water then into each universe he goes again and lies down again on this water on top of a snake. Okay, we're not finished. So then he has, a, he has a navel. You know, we have a navel as a symbol of the fact that we were in the womb, as the evidence that we were in our mother's womb and that we had to eat like that. You know, sometimes people get very sick and again, they have to eat like that. The doctors put a feeding tube into their uh, digestive system. They can't eat through their mouth. Any one devotee had to eat, who had to eat like that her whole life. She was never able to eat. And she just had, you know, she never, never had any food. <laughs> she would just have a tube in her body, and a couple times a day she would get a bag of liquid nourishment and sit down and hook up the bag. And so that's why we have our, our navel, that we were getting oxygen and nourishment 
uh, directly from our mother's bloodstream. So it was the evidence that we were given birth to. But with Garbhadakshai Vishnu, he uses his navel in an opposite way. Uh, he uses his navel to produce the universe. And so and from his navel comes a lotus flower. That's pretty amazing. Obviously, it's not a regular lotus flower. It's not the kind of lotus flower you find in the pond around the, the temple. And therefore we say, right, namaste is to dhamma, is directed to dhamma. Twadi odaraya, tavishvasvadhamma. In your belly, there's the universe. Because from this stem of this lotus flower, inside the stem were all of the planets that came from the Lord's abdomen. They go into the stem. And at the top of the lotus flower, he gives birth to a boy. Lord Brahma. Interesting way to have a child. Prabhupada will note that he does this without the help of Lakshmi. Lakshmi is also there, massaging his feet, but she doesn't get pregnant and give birth. That he gives birth independently, therefore Brahma is called self-born. And Brahma also has this ability. Brahma has children uh, that he gives birth to without the help of a female that just comes directly from his own mind or his own body. So, uh, interestingly enough, when Lord Brahma is born, he doesn't see his father. He doesn't, he doesn't know where he is. All of a sudden, there he is on the top of a lotus flower in, in darkness and in emptiness, and he has no idea where he is or what he's supposed to do. Now, we sort of have a thing like that when we take birth in this world. You know, we really don't know how we got here or what we're supposed to do. Uh, but generally, we don't ask those questions, at least for a few years. Where did I come from? What am I supposed to do? What is this world all about? And our families usually have some kind of answer. Well, you're my child, and these are your grandparents, and these are your great-grandparents, and this is your family, and this is your country, and this is what you're supposed to do. But Lord Brahma didn't have anyone to tell him that, and for reasons I don't understand, the Lord doesn't make it apparently obvious to him. He just puts him here in, in confusion and darkness. So being there in confusion and darkness, Lord Brahma does what any super intelligent, curious person would do, tries to figure it out. So he thinks, let me go back to my source, which is something we often try to do in this world. People who study their genealogy or people who go back to the homeland of their ancestors, you know, they're trying to figure out who am I, what's my source. So Lord Brahma does this by uh, literally going into the stem of a lotus flower. So he thinks, I took birth on a lotus flower. The answer must be in the, the source of this flower. So he goes into the stem, but he's blocked. He can't keep going down. He's blocked by the wheel of time. And he's not able to go fully down. And he has to go back up to his lotus. And then he, does, he just doesn't know what to do. And then he hears the word tapa. Now, tapa literally means pain, <laughs> uh, difficulty, suffering, austerity. Now, okay, you're not going to find this just by your own exploratory efforts. You're going to have to go through some trouble to find out. Now, in the spiritual world, there is no tapa. There is no austerity. There is no pain. Uh, there is no sacrifice like that. There's loving sacrifice. 
but there's nothing that one would call tapa. And as soon as we are in material consciousness, in order to understand anything, we have to take some trouble and some difficulty in order to accomplish anything, in order to do anything. This is one of the primary differences between spiritual consciousness and material consciousness. In spiritual consciousness, everything is already there. Everything is already complete. Everything is already there. There's no need to work to achieve something or to go through some trouble to achieve something. The apparent sacrifice and trouble that the residents of the spiritual world go through in Leela is just play. It's just play. It's just, it in itself is, is part of the, of the sport. But as soon as we think that we are separate from Krishna, then immediately we have this condition where we have to go through some trouble to achieve things. Now really, we don't have to go through any trouble to achieve anything, but the illusion of separateness brings with it the requirement of going through trouble to achieve things. If we want the illusion of separateness, then along with that goes through trouble to achieve things. Just like if, you know, the child is in their parents' house, the parents take care of them. The child doesn't have to make an effort to earn money, to get food, to get clothing. But as soon as they go out of the house, then they have to make that effort. I've always thought it interesting that children get so strongly impelled once they hit puberty to become independent. Isn't that fascinating? You know, we we get the strong impetus uh, to want to take care of ourselves. Anyway, so Lord Brahma had this tapa, and he thought, well, I don't know what else to do. Whoever said that probably knows what's going on. Sounds like a good idea. So he thought he would try that. And so what was the tapa that he engaged in? He engaged in meditation. The difficulty that he took up was controlling the mind. And we talked about this the other day. Yes? I think most of you were here. How controlling the mind brings one to the mode of goodness. And from the mode of goodness, the happiness of goodness tends to awaken one to, to self-realization. Whenever we are confused about what to do, whenever we are stuck, the solution always is to put the mind in sattva. That is always the solution. Or above that, to put the mind in bhakti at the lotus feet of the Lord. That's always the solution. When we are in difficulty, we tend to think of, you know, okay, how can I climb down the lotus stem and figure it out? How am I going to be, you know, use my intelligence and effort to figure it out? That is not correct. I mean, obviously for little things where the solution is already known, you can't see something and you move your chair a few centimeters so you can see. We're not talking about your average two-second solution. You know, my finger's bleeding, I get something to put on it. For the, I mean, that, we're not talking about that kind of thing. But the, the, the things in our life that really confuse us are evidence that our mentality is in the mode of passion and ignorance. Because in the mode of ignorance, you see things backwards, and in the mode of passion, you're confused. In the mode of ignorance, you're very certain that you're right, but you're wrong. In the mode of passion, you, sometimes you're certain, sometimes you're not, and you're just confused. You understand some things, you don't understand other things. In the mode of goodness, everything is clear, and in bhakti, 
everything is completely unlimitedly clean. So first you get the mind there. So Lord Rama uh, settled his mind. And because he settled his mind, he was able to have darshan of the Lord. Lord promised him freedom from illusion and told him of the essence of life and empowered him how to create. And then Lord Brahma created the universe. Why didn't uh, the Lord himself manifest all the details of the universe? Well, first of all, he likes to give credit to his devotees. And second of all, the jiva who becomes Lord Brahma, that's what he wants to do. Srila Prabhupada says that when we fall down from the spiritual world, our first birth is as Lord Brahma. And what does a fall down from the spiritual world mean? It means I want to be God. I probably said it's not a very big fall down. One wants to be God in service. Prabhupada said it's like a rich person who normally eats very rich food, but sometimes may want to eat puffed rice. You understand? So we were being given very rich prasadam, and I think it was yesterday morning, you know, I had just porridge and fruit. And the devotees were saying, do you want any more? I'm like, no, you know, I need a break from rich food. I want to eat something simple. So Prabhupada says in the spiritual world, the jiva may sometimes say, oh, I want to try this thing. I want to try this taste, a kind of curiosity. Let me see if I can be God independent of the Lord. As a service. Lord Brahma is creating the world as a service. Uh, but that I can be an independent God as a, as a service. Of course, Lord Ramak can also be going up. A jiva who for 100 births does all of their varnashram duties perfectly may become Lord Brahma. So there's other uh, ways a jiva becomes Lord Brahma. But Lord Brahma gets to be the God of the universe. This universe is considered the body of Lord Brahma. Just like in our body. Our body is also a kind of universe, Right? all the different organs and, and systems of the body. It's like a little mini-universe. In fact, in the Astanga Yoga system, the chakras and the nadis and etc. of the body have some equivalence in the universe. Like a little mini-reflection of the universe. And the varnas and the ashrams are compared to parts of the body of the universe. The Brahman is the head of the body and so forth and so on. And our body is made up of many, many living entities, correct? Many, many. Every cell of every organ and system of our body is alive. It's a soul. We have our skin cells and muscle cells. The cells in our lung, in our digestive system, in our bones, they're all alive. They're all alive. Every cell of our bones is alive. But those cells are not really aware of our existence. We're like the chief soul in the body. You understand? Each of us, we're like the chief soul in our body. And all these other little souls, they don't know that we exist. They don't know they're working for us. They don't have, they don't have a clue. You know, some little muscle cell in my heart that's just going... It's just thinking, to whatever extent the soul in that body is able to think. It's just thinking, food, oxygen, reproducing, defense. But 
It's not thinking, oh, I'm sending blood all over Ormila Devi Dasi's body as a service to her. It's not thinking that for sure. And when I take a little nap or I have a sleep, then the systems start going down, right? Our body temperature goes down. Digestion goes down, which is why you're not supposed to eat at night. Everything, everything shuts down. And when I leave the body, everything, nobody can exist anymore. All those little cells go, hey, what happened? I'm not getting any more food. I'm not getting any more oxygen. So Lord Brahma is the universe as his body, and we are all little cells in that body. And that's exactly what we are. We're little cells in this universal body of Lord Brahma, and we have certain functions. Some of us are part of the brain cells, some of us are part of the lung cells, some of us are part of the heart cells. These are our different our varnas within the world. But we're going along thinking, I'm just working for myself. We don't see our, that how we're feeding the body of Lord Brahma, who's a servant of the Lord, and ultimately you could say the Lord has this universe. So this is very brief. We could describe the creation according to the Bhagavatam in far more detail, but I wanted to stick just to this particular purport. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to go much beyond this purport in this particular class. But there, there's many, many further ways that we can describe the creation, the, the glance of Mahavishnu, which is the time factor of Lord Shiva and awakens the modes of material nature, the Mahabhutas, the space, gases, radiant energy, liquids and solids, how the different species are manifested in the planets, how the different planets are manifested, how the daughters of Daksha give birth to all of the species in the sixth canto. There's so many different summary description. There's Karunadakashai Vishnu, he's on, there's, a, there's this cloud that's temporary, and then the Lord lies down in this living ocean in the cloud, and he breathes out the universes, and they're floating in the ocean. And then he goes into the universes, and he's lying on the snake bed, and produces Lord Brahma. Uh, there's also a nice description in the 11th canto, how the way that Lord Brahma creates is the Lord enters the uh, bottom chakra, the mula chakra of Lord Brahma as the primal sound and then comes up through the chakras as Lord Brahma, changing the form of sound as he does so, and then comes out of the mouth of Lord Brahma as Vaikari, sound for creation. So there's a wonderful description like that in the 11th canto with Vishnu Chakraparita first commentary. Uh, from Bhaktivedanta Swami, we give a, a class on this aspect of creation and how this aspect of creation is the key, one of the keys to attentive and deep and effective chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. And so we were talking about the, the purpose of knowing these, these stories and thinking about these stories, which I see are putting some of you to sleep, but maybe that was just because you had a big event last night, uh, was one so that we can establish theism in the world. And the other reason is for our own meditation. As I said before, we tend to be absorbed in the material world. It tends to be our absorption, and understandably so. In order just to keep the body alive, there's a lot of things that we have to do. And in order to keep ourselves mentally, emotionally, socially healthy, 
which Bhakti Vinod Tagore talks about in, I think, Krishna Samhita. Uh, there's a lot of things that we need to take care of. And so that tends to be our absorption. And hearing about the Lord's creation can help us to remember uh, that this world is part of Him. That we are part of the body of Lord Brahma, uh, who is a servant of the Lord. That we are part of the creation of, Lord, of the Lord. That we are the Lord's dream. It gives us a perspective on our lives, doesn't it? At one time, Prabhupada was talking to Tamal. Krishna Raj Prabhupada and Tamal Krishna Raj had a very interesting relationship. Very unusual relationship. Tamal Krishna Raj would sometimes even yell at Srila Prabhupada. And, and they'd get into arguments and debate where he'd be yelling at Srila but Shiva Prabhupada knew that Tamal Krishnamaras was able to do things that nobody else could do. And Prabhupada wanted to secure the land in Mayapur. He'd been trying for a long time with so many other devotees. And he knew if he asked Tamal Krishnamaras, it would get done. And Prabhupada would also, could also very heavily correct and chastise Tamal Krishnamaras. And Tamal Krishnamaras would always take it. You know, there were some devotees that if Prabhupada would correct them, they would just become despondent. You know, they kind of crumble. <laughs> Tamal Krishnamash wasn't like that. So one time Prabhupada was talking to Tamal Krishnamash, Tamal Krishnamash had said something and that Prabhupada noticed was full of ego. And Prabhupada said, millions of universes coming from the body of Mahavishnu and in this one universe there's millions of galaxies and planets and stars and living entities and on one of those planets, uh, this earth planet, uh, there's billions of people hundreds of countries and in one of those countries there's a little city called Los Angeles and in Los Angeles there's one little street and on this street there's many houses and in one of these houses there's so many people and among all those people there's one Tamar Krishna who thinks he's very important. <laughs> there was one time, I think it was Sri Kirti tells this story, he was with Prabhupada when Prabhupada received a letter from a disciple Srila Prabhupada, I have a very big problem. And the devotee signed the letter, your insignificant servant. And Prabhupada was laughing, laughing. And he said, just see, how can an insignificant person have a very big problem? <laughs> so studying these things gives us perspective. It gives us perspective in our day-to-day -day life. You know, what's actually important. Burjan Prabhu had us do an exercise at, I think it was a Japa retreat in, in uh, Vrindavan, where he had us list a whole bunch of different things having to do with our body, with our family, with our work, with our money, so many things. And then he had us rate the intensity of emotion, either positive or negative, we felt for each of these things on a scale of one to five, with five being very intense, positive or negative emotion. Then he asked us to go through our list and find anything that were four or five. And then we discussed this idea of the creation. And he said, is there really anything in this world for which we should have intense emotion? Uh, but also we like to study these pastimes because it gives us, as I said in the beginning, an, a greater appreciation of the form of the Lord to which we as followers of Lord Chaitanya are, are aiming at. We are aiming at the form of the Lord uh, not as Paramatma, which is what's being discussed here, uh, but as Bhagavan. 
as Akila Rasamrita Murti. So, Karunadakashai Vishnu, Rabbadakashai Vishnu, they're not enjoying all of the rasas. But Krishna is, the Lord in his supreme form. He is enjoying all of the rasas. And he, has the, he is reciprocating in a detailed, intimate way with every living entity. And we appreciate him not only for how sweetly he plays his flute and how he's rubbing his eyes in fear of Mother Yasoda or how he's dancing simultaneously with thousands of, of beautiful women. So we're not only appreciating like that, but we also appreciate, wow, how does he create the world? He does it in his sleep. And he lies on a snake, and he has a lotus come out of his neck. Wow. And therefore you find that the great devotees will often include appreciations of that in their prayers, as we said, like in the Madhurastika. Your lips are sweet, your laughing is sweet, your walking is sweet, and your creation is sweet. And Baba said we should appreciate the creation of the Lord. He said, just like if somebody makes a very nice garden, if you go to that person, you say, oh, this is all false. He'll be offended. He'll be depressed. Prabhupada said, don't depress Krishna. <laughs> wow. You had all this come out of a, a lotus flower out of your navel? As the body of Lord Brahma? And you dream all this? And that should inspire us to serve the Lord in an intimate way. So questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions, questions. Yes. Well, I don't know if I can explain that specifically a little further. I don't know, you know, what did the walls of the inside of the lotus stem look like? And what, did, what exactly was the, did the wheel of time look like? Did it just look like the Sudarshan Chakra? Did Lord Brahma see it as a great light that Sudarshan Chakra is full of? I don't know. So that I can't explain anything. Uh, but as far as our own life, we tend to be, you know, what am I doing here? Where am I going? What am I supposed to do? Who am I? I mean, some people don't really ask that question. They just sort of go on whatever uh, flow, <laughs> they're, they're the easiest flow of their life. You understand? Your parents say, go to the school, you go to that school, your teachers say, get this, you know, study this, you study that and you just get whatever job comes available. They don't, they don't really think about it. who am I, what is the purpose of my life. But if we want to think about those things, just investigating using our own power is going to be insignificant. It's not going to be sufficient. It's not going to be sufficient. If we really want to know, we have to have a connection with the Lord. have a connection with the Lord, we have to put our mind 
in bhakti yoga, and if you can't do that, put it at least in sattva If our mind is in sattva things are clear like looking through a window, and if our minds are in bhakti yoga, things are clear like being outside. And that is the way to get the answers that we seek. There isn't any other way. Any other way, I mean, okay, if you can get from the mode of ignorance to the mode of passion, that will be an improvement in one's ability to understand things. That will be a significant improvement. And if we could get society in general to get from the mode of ignorance to the mode of passion, that would be a huge improvement. But that's, I mean, it would really be a very big improvement. But even the mode of passion is not, it's not. Prabhupada said just like a body of water if you stir it up like a lake or a pond, then the sediment at the bottom becomes in the water and the water becomes muddy. You have to let it, you have to let the sediment settle. As I said the other day, this is a very common analogy used by any tradition that engages in meditation. And when the mind is clear, and I gave an example, you weren't, you weren't here, I give the example of Achi Muni, that Achi Muni, when he made his mind clear and pacified, then that pacification of his mind attracted Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, and Lord Shiva to come see him personally. So how do we do that? How do we put our mind in the mode of goodness? Again, we discussed this extensively the other day. So our main method as devotees is through our japa and gayatri. That's our main method which is one of the many reasons that Srila Prabhupada gave us our japa as the only thing that he made us vow as disciples. The only positive anga of bhakti. No intoxication is not an anga of bhakti. The only positive anga of bhakti that we took a vow about. And that's the main way that we situate our mind like that. Now, kirtan can be, in many time, many cases, more effective than japa because we gain energy from the group. Uh, however, I find my personal experience is in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, we very rarely do kirtan as meditation. Um, just like last night, I found it quite fascinating. So we were singing the Dharastika and people were reasonably attentive it was on the screen and everybody was sitting down. And as soon as we finished and went to the Hare Krishna mantra, the attention in the room was broken. Yes? I mean, the attention was mostly from a very a small group, groups of people up here at the front. And, and there was a focus group and maybe a few other people were focused. But the other people in the room actually broke the focus. They were just talking and whatever making sure everybody saw their beautiful karti clothes. They were, and that was, it wasn't that mood. And if you have a kirtan where people are very focused and really meditating on the mantra and really trying to feel the presence of the Lord, then the effect of that can be much stronger than, than jhāpa. That's the, the yajna for this age and the, the collective mind, so to speak, of all the devotees becomes very much put in bhakti and then Krishna manifests uh, for the devotees. And when Krishna manifests, everything becomes clear. As Prabhupada says, that one's duty becomes uh, self, oh, self-evident, self I think he says in Bhagavad Gita. 
by the grace of the Lord. And that's true on a collective level, especially in Kirtan. So I was talking to Narantana Swami in Russia about uh, an issue that the GBC has been wrestling with for years about whether or not women who have shiksha disciples should be allowed to give diksha to them. And I, I said to Maharaj, you know, why don't instead of debating on and on and on with Shastra and philosophy, when GBC men just emailed me a couple days ago, can you give me the Shastra evidence? And I said, Maharaj, why are you even asking for this anymore? I said, if all the Shastra evidence has been brought up, it's all been debated, books have been written. Kante Yalkabu wrote a hundred-page book on the topic. I said, well, that's not what's needed. What's the point? So I said to Narendra Swami, you know, instead of going on and on and on and on like that, I said, why don't we pray? Why don't we ask for guidance from the Lord? This is our, the model that's in our Shastra. I mean, we also have a model of debate, of open public debate. And that's, of course, within Varnashram. That's a Brahminical model for finding truth, is you have open public debate. But our Vaishnava model for finding truth is prayer and meditation, is opening our mind. Yes? Is it, am I speaking correctly? That's how we find out what is the Lord's desire. I said, really, what we should be doing is trying to find out what does Srila Prabhupada want. He says, well, everyone thinks they know. I said, yeah, well, then we should just ask. And it was interesting. Narendra Swami told me, he said, I advised this to the GBC, but they refused. He said, I advise this very thing. I can't remember if he said one day or three days. I think he said three days. And he said, what I advised that we do is have three days of non-stop kirtan and japa. And then we sit down and try to figure this out. He said, but nobody agreed with me. And I'm personally convinced that had our leaders done that, then it would have become self-evident to them what Shri Prabhupada wanted and it wouldn't be a controversy. I mean, giving that as one example, but any kind of big controversy, any kind of big thing where there's contention and it's going on for years and different people have very hard-line opinions. Kirtan gives us the collective wisdom on an individual level. It's Kirtan, particularly Kirtan and and Japa and Gayatri. Also, of course, studying the scriptures and and prayer, connecting with the Lord. And that is a tapa, (laughs) because we want to do so many other things. We don't want to sit down and meditate. We don't want to sit down and pray. We don't want to sit down and focus on the kirtan. We have so many other very important things to do. And so we're always running around doing all those important things. And then we don't know. We don't have clear direction in our life. We don't have clarity about who we are. We don't have clarity about what the Lord wants of us. We make decisions based on business models, which is becoming more and more popular uh, technique now in the Hare Krishna movement. I mean, look, better to use business models, which are in the mode of passion, than to just decide randomly with no information and research, which is in the mode of ignorance. So, much as I said, passion is much better than ignorance. So, you know, if people are just, they never do any research, they don't gather any information, they don't know what the Shastra says, they don't know what the devotees need, and they just make some decision. We're, we're just going to do this. You know, so that's catastrophic. So much better to do business models of, you know, researching the environment, researching the devotees' needs, 
making a business plan, doing financial projections, and all those kind of things they do in the corporate world. So that's a step up. But the best thing to do is to connect with the Lord. Now, if you connect with the Lord, you might also do research. He might say, you know, he might indicate to you, hey, you better go do some research. But that's very different, a very different thing. So that's how we're meant to function. That's how we're meant to function as individuals, and it's how we're meant to function as a society. As I say, I don't see that we generally do that. I, I don't exactly know why, except that in this colony we were very influenced by Rajapun and Tamarun, and so we tend to think that activities in those modes are a lot more important. Yes? Is it possible that, just like there's a Nope. Only one jiva. Each jiva is unique. So, nope. Every jiva is unique. There was some song like that when I was a teenager. I know I'll never find another you. It was some love song. I don't remember the rest of it. I'm sure I could remember if I really tried. I know I'll never find another. There's no other you. Only you are you. <laughs> There's no other you. Only you are you. Hey, look. Krishna doesn't make two snowflakes the same. Right? How long does a snowflake last? And who cares? Who is going to look at every snowflake? Every snowflake is different. Who is going to care? If you were God, would you make every snowflake different? I wouldn't bother. I would have a factory machine and just make them all the same. What's the functional purpose of every snowflake being different? There isn't any. There's one nice video about how evolution can't be true because a lot of what's in the world is just simply beautiful and not functional. And evolution is all based on functionality. A god who makes every snowflake different must really like variety. He must like variety to a point beyond anything we can imagine. Every grain of sand is different. Remember one devotee said to me, well, it's not that every grain of sand is different. I said, yeah, they are, actually. If you see photographs under a microscope, every grain of sand is different. Even on one tree, every leaf on one tree is slightly different from every other leaf. On the same tree. What to speak of that all the trees have different shaped leaves? Why? But that's not functional. You understand? It doesn't, it doesn't provide a function. Different shaped leaves and, and on the same tree. Each flower that grows from the same bush, the same tree, is a little different from every other flower that grows on that tree. Any of you who like to pick flowers, which is something I really like to do. That's not going to be true of the soul. If that's true for grains of sand, and that's true for snowflakes, which are material things, 
that as far as I can see, nobody but Krishna cares about. He's doing that completely solely for his own pleasure. Can you imagine any, any person wanting to look at every single grain of sand and every single snowflake? But Krishna obviously does. He's aware of them and he enjoys them. Oh, who's he doing it for? The crabs on the, on the beach? So what to speak of, of us? What to speak of the Jiva? No, he's a, he's a god of infinite variety. Don't worry. Yes? Mm. Yeah. Milk ocean is in the material world. So it's made of material elements, it's matter. How the milk ocean keeps from spoiling, I don't know. I mean, even a sweet water ocean. You know, the, the benefit of the fact that our oceans are salty is it preserves water. You know that even water goes bad? Does everybody know this? Water actually goes bad. So the salt and minerals in the ocean water preserve the water. And then the water cycle pulls out the fresh water from it, leaves the minerals behind. And the reason the oceans don't get overly salty is the fresh water rivers pour back into it. Right? A place like the Dead Sea or the Salt Lake, uh, they don't have, they just keep evaporating. You know, there, there's, no, um, there's no flow, and therefore they become dead when there's no flow, when there's no movement of, of things going in and out, uh, things become dead. So I don't know how Krishna has a, a sweet water ocean that stays good, and I don't know how he has a milk ocean. There's also a yogurt ocean. Imagine a yogurt ocean. You know, we want to have some yogurt for our Sunday feast, we just go to the ocean, pull out a bucket. So I don't know how he does that. You know, that does another planet's and the laws of physics and chemistry that we know on this planet don't function the same way there. They function in a different way. But no, that's not living. But there are certainly, if that's true in the material world, there are certainly such things in the spiritual world. It says Govardhan has waterfalls, you know. Maybe he has waterfalls of milk. Maybe he has waterfalls of honey. I don't know. Prabhupada wrote in a letter to one of my god sisters. He said, for questions like that, I suggest you chant Hare Krishna, go to the spiritual world and see for yourself. <laughs> so thank you very much, Shiva Prabhupada. Thank you, John.